all, I just wanted to hop on before this episode started and give a few quick trigger warnings. So as you've seen in the title, we talk a lot about eating disorders in this episode. So if talking about eating disorders is something that helps your recovery, then by all means stick around. But if it's something that harms your recovery, please feel free to skip this episode and join us next week. Um, And then we also talk about restriction, binging, and purging, body image issues, depression, perfectionism, shame, and self-harm. And we do talk about self-harm for about 15 minutes. And so if that's something that's triggering for you, please feel free to skip over that. Um, I also just wanted to give a quick disclaimer that when we go into this conversation, we're talking a lot about how certain cultures can impact healing and one's susceptibility to certain disorders. And I wanted to just give the clarification for those of you who maybe have never seen me. um, I am a white woman. I grew up in a white passing family. And so I am in no means trying to contribute to this conversation in a way that says that I have expertise. That's why we brought our guest on. Um, But our guest does do a phenomenal job of handling this conversation with such gentleness and nuance, especially considering that it is a really sensitive and multifaceted topic. And I would recommend this episode to people who may relate to her experience and also people who may not relate at all. It's the main reason why I started this podcast was to have conversations with people who have expertise in life experiences that I have absolutely no relation to. And so um, I think that this episode dives into a lot of really important conversations and I really enjoyed listening to our guests and I hope you do too. Hi all and welcome back to Mindful Minds. Thank you so much for joining us today. Today we're going to be chatting about disordered eating in South Asian cultures with at your South Asian therapist. Um, so we have Fatima Javinci Shakir on today. Um, I found your page through um, specifically looking about different types of mental health care because I realized that I've been trying to have people on um, the podcast that represent different cultures and different demographics because I think the mental health space and even further, the eating disorder space is definitely very whitewashed. Um, and so I came across your page and some of the stuff that you talk about and some of the topics that we're going to cover today, I have not seen um, either very few creators cover those topics or really just you. Um, <laughs> and so I'm so glad to have you on because I think that you your page is so incredibly like intersectional and intentional about things that if you haven't grown up in South Asian culture, you might be entirely unaware of. Um, so thank you so much for coming on. I'm super excited. Um, and I wanted to give you a little chance first to give the listeners a little insight into who you are and your background and why you started uh, your South Asian therapist. Um, it's really a pleasure to be on here um, and talking with you today. Um, so I identify as a therapist, a writer, and a speaker. Um, like Fina said, I specialize in eating disorders. Um, I also work with people who struggle with borderline personality disorder, um, have trauma histories, struggle with depression, anxiety, and relationship um, challenges. And I look at these specifically from a really intersectional lens. So I specialize in working with Um, Black, Indigenous, and people of color. Uh, My personal identities are um, that I am South Asian and Muslim. And so um, these are 
um, areas that are really near and dear to my heart. And, you know, as I entered the field of eating disorder work, I, I entered it with the intention to help people who were like me and who were from backgrounds similar to me. And, um, you know, as I was on Instagram learning from other people, I realized that there was a pocket of information that was missing, right? And specifically for people from um, communities that I also identify with. And that's really what inspired my page is just to be a place for people to learn more, um, to connect and to really feel validated in some of the experiences that they might be having. Yeah, no, that makes complete sense. Um, like I said, the stuff that you cover I I haven't really seen elsewhere, or if I have, it's definitely not the the sole focus of the page. Um, I've seen slight representation here and there, especially mm-hmm. eating disorder and some of the things that you bring up, which like I said, we're going to talk about, um, I had never been things that had crossed my mind as someone who did not grow up in a South Asian culture. Like I grew up in a um, primarily white uh, westernized, uh, American, like evangelical Christian environment. So definitely not the same environment. Um, and I struggle with an eating disorder, but the, the reasons and the, uh, I guess the upbringing and things are, are entirely different. Mm -hmm. And I think if you're looking at that from a perspective of, okay, well, here is this disorder, which I think in general, eating disorders are underrepresented and they're, um, not talked about enough and there isn't as much, uh, mainstream conversation. And if there is mainstream conversation, often it can be kind of toxic. And we've talked about this on the podcast before, but the, the pop culture representation of eating disorders in the past has been, it's the skinny white girl and it's the skinny Mm -hmm. rich girl specifically. And that it's kind of this like fun, like New Yorker, um, thing (laughs) that it's not like a real (laughs) disorder. Um, and then simultaneously, like in pop culture, that if you're not, um, if you don't look incredibly sick that you, that you couldn't possibly be suffering from eating disorder. And so the, in order to like heal and get the right resources and the right coping mechanisms and even like develop the, I've noticed with my disorder, a lot of it is habits and retraining habits. Mm -hmm. It makes sense that it would be incredibly important to look at the upbringing and the environment and the roots of the issue because they do different differ from culture to culture in order to actually properly treat that issue and properly heal from that trauma. Um, so it makes so much sense that it, it also is so like important and valid that that's something that you're focusing on because if, if you don't understand the background from maybe why you're suffering from what you're suffering from. It could make sense that healing could be a really hard thing to get to and understand. And also the traditional ways of healing might not be as applicable, at least in their current formats, right? Like if they don't necessarily align with your experiences or your culture. And I think what you were saying around like the idea of eating disorders being whitewashed, I think like that happens so much in the media and also in like the, in general, like society's general understanding of what eating disorders look like or who they happen to. And I think that adds to actually like the stigma around having an eating disorder if you identify as South Asian, because it's not only like people of white backgrounds who believe that white people experience eating disorders, but then also people from our own community 
internalize that messaging too, which can really invalidate it, someone's experience if they are struggling with an eating disorder. And I think beyond that, like even prevent the eating disorder from being identified in the first place. And so my hope is that by having a page that focuses on this, it brings to light the fact that like this does happen in our community and it's real. And here are the things that might be contributing to it. Right. And I think that's where we can start to break that generational cycle is if we start to realize like what's happening in our day-to-day culture that's impacting the development of of an eating disorder. So I'm, my hope is that this page will continue to grow and, and really just help people on their journeys and educate people along the way. Yeah, no. And I mean, I would say you're doing a fantastic job thus far. Like so much yeah. of what I've seen from your page um, has been affirming to me, despite the fact that I might not relate to it, but then also very Mm -hmm. educational in the sense of, like I said, it's not something that gets talked about a lot. It's not an environment that I grew up in. And so, so much of it is just like, oh my gosh, I never realized that that was even a problem or that that was real or that that was, you know, it's just the, the sheer exposure to different human experiences can be, um, very informing, I think for a lot of groups of people. Yeah. And with that being well, I said, appreciate your willingness to learn. <laughs> oh yeah, of course. Well, and um, I know that we've kind of already addressed the fact that there's definitely a difference between how mm-hmm. South Asian cultures um, function, honestly, compared to Westernized cultures. But specifically, can you talk a little bit about the difference between how South Asian cultures view mental health and mental health care compared to Westernized cultures? Because I think that might be a good starting point for the conversation. Yeah. So one of the first things that comes to mind when you ask this question is like the idea of collectivism. Um, So South Asian cultures are often very collectivistic. So it's about the we and not about the you. And so if somebody is struggling with a mental health problem, I think what makes it really difficult oftentimes for the family and the community to accept it is because it can feel like it's a reflection on parents on grandparents, on siblings. Um, And that can be really difficult for people to sit with, right? Because they don't want to feel like, wait, if you have this problem, I have this problem too. And so I think that's where a lot of the stigma really begins and then prevents people from, um, from getting the appropriate help and kind of tied into that. um, There's a lot around, um, shame in, in a lot of South Asian cultures. And I say cultures because even within South Asia, different countries, different states, different communities have all of their own subcultures. So I don't know that what I'm saying is necessarily going to be reflective of everyone's experience. Um, but so there's this concept called sharam in, in our culture, which, um, ref- which represents shame. And so there can be a lot of fear of like, if you're struggling with a mental health problem, it's going to bring shame on the family. And so what a lot of people will hear starting from a really young age, not even just about mental health, but about anything that they do that um, family members might disagree with is this idea of like, well, if you do that, it's going to hurt your grandparents. It's going to kill your grandparents. Um, People are going to look downly on us. Um, a common phrase in Hindi is like Lokyange, or in Gujarati, it's like Manso Sukese, all which reflects like, what are people going to say about us if they find out? Right. And so it becomes this thing that like, 
okay, there's a lot of shame around it. Um, and is that the honor is kind of the other thing that comes up a, a lot where, you know, if this shameful thing is brought to light, it's going to dishonor the family. And because of that, um, a lot of things then get buried under the rug, right? Whether that's depression, anxiety, whether it's abuse and trauma, whether it's an eating disorder, it all gets buried because people are so nervous about how the community is going to see somebody who's struggling or has experienced harm. I can imagine that's incredibly isolating. Yeah. And it kind of continues that conspiracy of silence, right? Of like, Mm -hmm. let's not say anything. Let's not say anything. Let's repress these things, Um, which then really keeps you stuck, right? There's um, the saying that I really love, which is secrets don't keep people safe. They keep people stuck because you can't Mm. heal what you don't allow yourself to see, right? What you won't allow yourself to see, but also what others aren't allowing themselves to see about you and and your struggles. Yeah. Shame is so powerful. And I, I, there's so many cliche phrases about shame and about Mm -hmm. like bringing (laughs) things to light and it all sounds so hokey, but it, it really is incredible how much freer you can feel when you're able to share and, um, talk about things and be in community with other people and Mm -hmm. feel like someone relates to you and like all these different things that come from being able to be honest about experiences, even if it's something that maybe someone else doesn't understand, like the the power and just saying things out loud and having the availability and the freedom to actually voice things, your, your brain is so incredibly powerful and it can create, um, I had a therapist once that was trying to explain to me, not to view my brain as, as the enemy necessarily, but to acknowledge Mm. its power and kind of almost how to help like healthily harness that power and how my brain can be incredibly creative (laughs) and that Mm -hmm. creativity can be used in a negative way. Um, and I had my therapist talk to me about it and then I had a guest on the podcast echo it. And I was like, okay, I get it. (laughs) Get it. Like I understand. Um, I'm you know, the the universe is speaking to me here. Um, <laughs> but it was one of those things where um my brain could come up with all these different situations where people might hate me for this thing, or um people might disown me, or it might be the end of the mm-hmm. world if I'm ever honest about something, and how my brain would just like spin and spin and spin and spin and spin and spin and spin. And then when I was finally able to voice that shame or that secret or that fear to someone who was trusted and safe, having a response that was not all of the things that my brain had concocted mm-hmm. was so freeing. And simultaneously, I've had many therapists in my healing journey. Um, specifically, I'm an assault survivor. And that's a very mm-hmm. intense story to share with people. And I had a therapist at the very beginning of that process of being open and honest about it. I was honest about it with everyone. And everyone that I would come into contact with, I felt the need to share this thing with them. Mm-hmm. And I think I almost thought of it as a warning of like, I need to warn you of the trauma that's going on in my life. And I had a therapist mm-hmm. share with me, um, you need to be more careful about who you share this with because it's a really valuable piece of information and not everyone is going to respond to it in a way that is healthy or makes you feel safe. And if you just throw that story out to everybody, 
you could get really hurt and people could respond to it in a way that does affirm all of those horrible things that your brain has concocted and all of those stories and all of those fears. Like you could share that with someone and really affirm it. And I'm sure it's incredibly um, scary to uh, have a, have a environment and a family environment where those fears that are in your head are also kind of confirmed by the people around you. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a little bit of an off book question, but do you think that COVID and the isolation that came with COVID uh, negatively impacted the mental health of people who have grown up in South Asian cultures, potentially even more so than others, just considering that maybe the way that you find freedom is through community outside of your family dynamic or through friends. Do you think that the isolation of potentially keeping people in um, homes with their families and kind of like very much so in their family systems and maybe not having the freedom to be able to have that community outside of familial relations. Do you think that caused more mental health damage than, um, I don't want to say like than other people, cause I know it was hard on everyone, but do you think it was almost yeah. like disproportionately difficult? I think that's a really good question. And I think the short answer is yes. The more nuanced answer is I think the reason that this might've happened, right. Is because like you said, you're kind of contained in this environment. Whereas before you might've found people, places, communities that made you feel safe and made you feel heard, right? Whether or not you were actually talking about the inner things that were going on, there might still have been a sense of safety um, with people outside of your immediate home environment. And throughout COVID, if that's the environment you're in, and for example, maybe there isn't that same escape, right? There isn't that same sense of comfort, of community, of safety that you could go to in moments where you're not feeling very safe, um, it's it's going to be really hard, right? There, there's going to be more that you're kind of filling into your container without really being able to pour it into places so that you are, are feeling healthy, um, feeling sound, feeling cared for, feeling, feeling heard and loved. Um, and I think one of the ways that this can contribute to disordered eating is because there is um, a lot of emotional suppression that can happen in our culture. This idea that you need to control your emotions, you need to hide what's happening to you. And oftentimes, I should add, that's seen as a sign of strength, right? So if you share how you're feeling, people often will label you as being emotional, being weak, um, being unsuccessful, like, oh, you can't manage yourself. Um and so if you express emotions, you're, you're seen as being weak, but if you hide them, you're seen as being strong, right? And so naturally your emotions need somewhere to go. And that's where disordered eating could come into play, right? Because perhaps you use restriction as a way to cope with those feelings. Like I can't put food in my body right now because I already feel so emotionally full, Perhaps someone might have turned to binge eating um, to kind of find a source of comfort and safety when they weren't getting that in their home environment. Um, so I think you you bring up a really really important question. That's a that's a great point. The specifically, um, you might not be able to feel like you can eat because you're already too emotionally full. That's a, I've never heard restriction, um, described as that. That's a fantastic way to describe it. And I know that's not necessarily the case for everyone who deals with restriction. That's not always your, your, um, 
I guess, core like issue mm-hmm. of why you're doing it. Um, but that's a really interesting way to phrase it. Um, additionally, do you, um, I know that there are also aspects and um, even from your page of other aspects of culture, um, besides the emotional suppression and besides the, mm-hmm. um, kind of inability to freely express how you're feeling. Um, and I want to come back to that. I first want to just address, um, once again, slightly off book. So I apologize, but, okay. <laughs> um, I have been doing a lot of inner child work in my own life. And I mm-hmm. found that when you do that, there's no way to, uh, keep it uh in only your life it kind of goes into every other aspect where you see everything from the lens of that um and i can imagine that's so incredibly uh damaging to your inner child when you've grown up in an environment where um you're not able to express your emotions and then you finally get the bravery and you work up the courage and you um or even just can't handle it anymore and you have to express it and there's no other option because you're overflowing. And then you're met with specifically when you mentioned that you're not successful, like the idea of kind of being painted as the, um, irrational over emotional, like neurotic person where maybe Mm -hmm. the idea is that, Oh, you can't even handle life when you've been handling it. You've been handling it too much, essentially. Like you, you've been, you've been given, more than is even reasonably, uh, people, any, and anyone is reasonably able to handle in terms of like, mm-hmm. you can only handle so much suppressed emotion before you either bubble over, whether that's bubbling over and actually being honest about how you're feeling, whether that's bubbling over in having random spouts of anger for things that, you know what I mean? Like it, it can bubble mm-hmm. over in any way, but it's going to bubble over. Um, how do you think that that contributes and that kind of silencing of, your inner child contributes to, um, I guess, silencing of other emotions and potential like further emotional issues or disorders like disordered eating or other things. Like, how do you think that that can contribute? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, this is not a direct answer to your question, but it was something I was thinking about, like, as you were speaking, right? Like this idea that it's, it's going to bubble over, right? Like, your brain and your body can only handle so much of your emotions without it being expressed. And one of the common things that I've, I've heard people refer to is something called Bigum syndrome, right? Which is when you have, um, a woman often like who's, um, I'd say like middle age or elderly, and they might be like, people who repeatedly go to the doctor saying like, they're not feeling well, like, you know, they're really irritable, like their stomach is hurting, this is hurting, that's hurting. And so a lot of times like practitioners will um, say like, oh, you're just experiencing big own syndrome. Like you're just a woman who uh, is repeatedly coming for care, but like nothing is really wrong. And I think that really what they're saying is that there's physical manifestations of the emotional experiences that they're feeling, right? And there's, I don't know the researchers off the top of my head, but there's research that talks about how um, people of Asian backgrounds often experience things like depression, anxiety, irritability in different ways, that it's often more of a sensory and body experience than 
what they might consider like an emotional experience. So there's more likelihood of complaining of like stomach pains, headaches, um, all of those things that are often then dismissed, even when they're going to providers asking for help. Right. And I think it's important to consider what providers are they asking for this help. They're often going to medical doctors because they're experiencing this in a physiological way and not necessarily interpreting it as being something that's psychosomatic or psychological. And so because doctors also aren't always trained and aware of those cultural differences, they're not, they're not getting the help they need, which contributes to everything continuously bubbling over, like you were saying, right? And I think when those symptoms go untreated and unhelped really in their earlier stages, that's where we see things become more and more severe over time. Right. And yeah, no, that makes complete sense. And there's, if there's like one thing that I've learned about trauma and emotions and anything over the past, like, you know, five or six years, they will find a way to manifest. (laughs) They will find a way. Whether that is like in an emotional meltdown where you can't handle it anymore and now you're screaming and you're crying. And even if you're just like, I've had things where, um, I was a dissociator. Like that was what I, that was how mm-hmm. I processed as a child. And so I would have these huge meltdowns over the smallest things. And I yeah. had no idea why I was so upset over the fact that my grilled cheese was burnt. Like yeah. it made no sense to me. Or if I'm, you know, experiencing a lot of stress, I've had things like uh, during really stressful periods of my life filled with extensive trauma where it started manifesting in, in my body and in hair loss and like, uh, stomach issues and headaches and all yeah. these different things. And if if you're coming from an environment too, where obviously if there is um, kind of this uh, common thread throughout South Asian cultures that mental health care is um, not necessarily a priority because you're 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 wanting to make sure that everyone is seeming like they have everything together. You want to make sure that you're honoring your family and that that you're you're kind of keeping the the perfect image even if it's maybe mm-hmm. not actually perfect it makes sense that there also wouldn't be um the same mental health care education and the same um even like uh, mental health literacy in terms of like being able to even understand or be aware mm-hmm. of the fact that anxiety might manifest in in stomach aches because if at the core of kind of your family values anxiety isn't even really a valid concern why why would you have the the education and the knowledge the research even the desire to to look into whether or not anxiety manifests in other ways um mm-hmm. because i've had people um in my life or even in my friends lives where if they're experiencing anxiety and they're they're from a family that doesn't even really recognize anxiety as a real disorder why would they then recognize your stomach ache as a symptom of anxiety being a real issue you know what i mean like if the core yeah. issue isn't even valued then why would the the subset issue that's kind of a limb off of the core be treated mm-hmm. and, and recognized and validated? Because um, anxiety and it and it's or in any any mental health issue, uh, depression, eating disorders, anxiety, anything kind of has to be recognized and validated at its core for its subset mm-hmm. issues to be validated. Yeah, and I think that like what you're saying is interesting because. I often see clients, especially those of South Asian backgrounds, who, when those earlier concerns weren't recognized or validated, 
it kind of sends that internal message to your, the child version of yourself, right? Of like, oh, what I'm experiencing isn't bad enough. People can't see my pain. And so sometimes you want people to see that you're in pain, right? You want them to know, hey, I need help. And that's where self-harm can often pop up, right? Because that is often seen as like, oh, okay, you're struggling. There's a visible sign that you're struggling and it's seen as a physical thing, right? Because it can be seen on your body. It's not seen as an emotional manifestation. It's a physical manifestation of your pain. And culturally, we're taught that physical ailments, those should be treated, right? That's okay to go to the doctor for. It's okay to ask for help for something like that. Um, And so that's often why, you know, we'll see that kind of presentation in, in people of South Asian background, because it almost has to get that bad for people in their families and their, in their environments to realize that they're struggling and that they need some type of help. Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting way to look at self-harm too. Um, Do you, I recently made the connection in my own brain Mm -hmm. that uh, my disordered eating is inherently self-harm for some reason Mm -hmm. in my brain, they were disconnected. Um, And in my brain, self-harm was like cutting and it wasn't starving yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, And that, that, that mental bridge had not, had not been made. Um, Do you think that kind of in, in that crossover that, disordered eating or developing disordered eating can also be kind of a manifestation of, of self-harm and of trying to give some sort of, um, physical validity to internal pain. Absolutely. Um, I think I see this oftentimes in clients who struggle with bulimia, especially, um, because it's, it's vomiting, it's purging, and it's something that, um, a lot of times their family members associate that with like a physical sickness, right? Of like, oh, you're vomiting. And so they might not necessarily tell their family members like, oh, I'm intentionally purging. But for example, if family members can hear you, if you're using the bathroom a lot, if you say like, I, you know, I, I just threw up after I ate, it can often elicit concern because again, they're seeing it as a physical manifestation of whatever is, is going on for you. And they might initially think that that is only physical and not realize that there's an emotional component. Um, but again, I think it's that self-harm so that you, you can get that care that you need. And in a lot of ways, I think, you know, the, the brain is really smart and the brain and the body knows that it needs care and it needs attention and it's finding strategies to have that need met. Right. And if it works, it can also for, for some people be like, well, why should I do something different? Right. This is what's working. This is how my family sees that I need help, that I need care. Um, and so that's one of the things that we're often working through is how do you get your needs met without having to harm yourself? And, and, um, yeah. Yeah. That's one of the, the, I think trickiest things about mental disorders in general is how intelligent your brain is inherently Mm -hmm. and how those like neural connections can be like really fortified the more that you engage in in any type of disordered activity or um, 
disordered thinking. Um, I was just talking about my friend, uh, talking to my friend about this with OCD and about the fact that one of the reasons why OCD is so tricky is that you're every time that you engage in a compulsion and it saves you from whatever concern you're concerned about, it just, it just fortifies those neural connections and convinces your brain that, well, this is, this is working. Yeah. And, um, we were talking about specifically, I have contamination OCD and we were talking about COVID and the fact that I have not gotten COVID. And so in my brain, it is incredibly difficult to try to challenge my compulsions because it's like, well, they're working. I haven't mm-hmm. gotten COVID and my neural connections have been fortified so many times because of, I've done these compulsions for two years that right. my brain is absolutely convinced without a shadow of the doubt that the reason why I don't have COVID is because of X, Y, Z and because of these compulsions that are really just a manifestation of OCD. Mm-hmm. Um, and even if they are keeping me safe to some extent, like my brain is convinced that they are the sole reason why mm-hmm. I am safe. And There's that can translate. It. Yeah, that yeah. And that can translate. Yeah, that can translate to to things. Obviously, OCD is a separate disorder, but that can translate to if you're if you're getting the attention or the care or the um even just the love that you were seeking. And in my opinion, like I always kind of view that, like I said, I'm doing inner child work. So the inner child is coming into everything. Yeah. But I've noticed that like my I, I my inner child, I think your inner child is kind of always screaming for their needs to be met. And when they start getting met in a healthy way, I actually think that it becomes more of a kind request from your inner child compared to a like visceral scream. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've noticed that the more that I have learned how to get needs met in a way that is healthy and in a way that is getting actual attention that is um, beneficial and isn't negative attention, it doesn't make me feel icky and shameful, that my inner child is not um, so desperate, I guess. Like she's she's not so panicked and like she might be asking for things and saying, oh, hey, like we need this, but it's not like, oh my God, please, we need this like right now. There's not the panic and the desperation and the urgency because it's done in a way that's actually, it's actually fulfilling the needs at their core. It's not just kind of like masking Mm -hmm. the the fulfillment because I I think that when the fulfillment is derived from something that isn't actually, um, it isn't actually fulfilling the need. It's just kind of like giving you like maybe the attention that you think that you want, but it's actually negative attention that internally makes you feel kind of, icky and self-critical and like breed self-hatred, you're not actually really getting that need met. And so once the needs start to get met in a way that actually fulfills the need in a healthy and sustainable way, then I think your inner child is like, okay, okay, we're getting our needs met. Like we don't have to panic. Like we're good. But (laughs) until you feel that feeling and you can, uh, acknowledge the difference, which often happens through an extensive amount of therapy until Mm -hmm. you understand and have experienced both of those things, like the inner child getting their need met through the kind of masking and the, the maybe not so healthy coping mechanism. And then the healthy one, it you have, you have no idea the difference you haven't experienced both. And so it's kind of like, how is your brain to determine which one is healthy and which one is not, and which one is sustainable and which one isn't because all you know is your normal. So if your normal is just getting attention, getting care, getting love, getting fulfillment through really unhealthy methods, 
that's all that you know. And your brain is like, well, we're getting some of our needs kind of met. So we're going to keep like fighting for this. And I think that the hard part too, when I think about um, people from South Asian communities is even like understanding and knowing what your needs are can be really difficult because a lot of us um, from a very young age are raised with the idea that again, collectivism, you prioritize the needs of other people over your own, right? And so you might be taught, for example, like um, one of the, the things that I often think about is like being taught from a young age to be able to cook, to clean, um, to dress in ways that other people would value and and appreciate. Um, and even like behaviors, right? Like, and mannerisms, like you want to behave in a way that respects the other person and takes care of, of their needs or if they're having a problem, you prioritize that above and beyond like what you might be going through. And so there's a lot of these people pleasing tendencies that were taught. And I think because that's fostered from, from such an early age, it becomes difficult to even be in tune with like, what are my needs? What do I want? And I know for, for me as a, as a person, like one of the things I often struggle with is like, if somebody asks like, well, what do you want to do? Or what do you want to eat? Unless I like really, really strongly know what my answer is, I won't know the answer. Like it's a, it's a very like black or white of like, I know what it is and I need that need to be met. Or I have no clue and I don't even know how to tap into what might the need be um, because I've been so taught. I've been taught to really think about like, well, we'll eat what you feel like eating or we'll do what you feel like doing um, and always prioritizing the other person. And so now even if I have opportunities to think about my needs, it's really hard <laughs> to know what where to even start looking for that or what that might be. Yeah. And that's a, that's a fantastic segue actually um, to the next question that I had on our list, which is great. Um, we were going to talk a little bit too about disordered eating and specifically when it comes to needs, um, <laughs> how being raised in a South Asian cultural environment can teach you to essentially ignore your needs when it comes to food specifically and how that can basically lead to being predisposed to disordered eating or developing eating disorders. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that, about how the actual environment that you're raised in can contribute to you ignoring your needs, especially when it comes to food? Sure. So there's a couple of different pathways, um, you know, that I've kind of identified, especially in like working with different people and just being a part of the culture. But I think one is it starts at a really early age where, you know, when we go to different people's houses, whether that's like a family friend or a grandparent, um, it's really common in the culture to like offer somebody like food or drinks. Like when you go over like, Hey, do you want something to eat? Can I get you some water, some Coke, et cetera. And you're taught as a child that the polite thing to do is to decline, to say no whenever somebody offers that food. So even if you are hungry or something looks really good and you're like, yeah, <laughs> I would love to try that, um, you're kind of primed to say no, right? And so that teaches you, I think, from a really early age, again, that idea of like 
please the other person. Don't inconvenience them. Don't make them do something for you, um, regardless of how hungry or thirsty you might be. And then I think the way that that kind of gets expanded on is, you know, when we think about social gatherings, um, so social gatherings in South Asian cultures are often really focused on food. Um, and I think a lot of this comes from kind of the, the history of poverty in a lot of South Asian places where, you know, if you were hosting people and you were able to provide a lot of food, it was a sign of wealth, of prosperity, of really caring for the people that you were inviting over, that you went the extra mile when it might have been really financially difficult for you to do that. Um, so if you're hosting, um, you know, it, it's considered really nice if you're able to provide a lot of food, a lot of really good food, variety of food. Um, and it's seen as a love language. You're expressing your care. Um, and so in that, you know, if you go to someone's house, oftentimes they're going to encourage you to keep eating. So you might have a half empty plate and they're like, Oh, let me put more on your plate. Um, you may or may not want that, right? So one, if they offer it to you, the polite thing to do is say, no, like that's okay, um, even if you want it. The other piece of that is it as a host, it, their role th- is often to say like, no, no, but take some anyway, take some anyway. Oftentimes they'll put food on your plate, even if you've said no, and you may really not want that, right? And so I think where this leads to the disordered eating is one, you may not feel comfortable saying when you do want something, but two, you know, someone is crossing a boundary when you're saying no. So if you're saying no, and someone's putting something on your plate, they're saying, it doesn't matter what you want. It matters what I want to do to you, right? Or what I want to share with you. And so I think that is one of the ways in which like boundaries in our culture are not very clear and respected from a really early age. Um, but I also think that, you know, those experiences can make our internal hunger cues not very calibrated because you're saying no when you want to say yes and you're eating something when you're not really hungry, right? Which can affect your hypothalamus because your hypothalamus is might be telling you like, no, I'm full, but you're kind of forced to feed it anyway. So you're telling your hypothalamus, wait, you're wrong. So now the hypothalamus is going to try to recalibrate um, to be like, okay, like I still need to eat anyway, even if I'm not hungry. And so I think from like a very like bodily biological perspective, it can have a negative impact, but also in kind of that, that psychosocial um, perspective of like, what do boundaries look like? What does love mean? Um, also gets really complicated. Yeah. And that makes so much sense in terms of tying it back to what you were talking about with needs earlier, that Mm -hmm. if at a really young age, even from like a developmental perspective, you're essentially um, like brought up in a way that teaches you to not develop that kind of intuition and um, practice in any type of like intuitive eating of actually answering um, biological needs. uh, Mm -hmm. And then like you mentioned earlier, also emotional needs. So essentially just as a whole, you're, you're, being taught and then like 
there are developmental connections and neural connections that are happening as a very young child that's just priming you to not be able to really recognize your needs or meet them, which makes sense that why like you as an adult are, are, are don't even really know what your like needs are because it's like, okay, well, I haven't been taught to meet them, to recognize them, to have boundaries with them. Like there's really no, um, I don't really think this is a correct term, but there's really no like need development <laughs> in terms of yeah. like that developmental um, process as a child. Yeah. Yeah, that is so true. And I think the other piece is that in a lot of South Asian cultures, and there's overlap with religion here too, um, wasting food, not finishing food is seen really negatively, right? It's seen as like you're being wasteful, you're being sinful. So you're, you're supposed to finish everything on your plate. You're not supposed to throw anything away. That's kind of the cultural expectation and, and religious expectation in, in some cases. And so again, right, when we're talking about like your body's needs and being in tune with that, well, if you're full, but you still have food on your plate, now you're probably going to be forcing yourself to finish that so that you don't throw it away. Because if you throw it away, not only is it sinful, but it's considered rude to the person who cooked the food or ordered the food or really brought that food for you, right? Like they're showing you love and respect in this way. And here you are throwing it away. Right. Like inherently you taking care of your needs is disrespectful to someone else. Right. It's seen as like very black or white oftentimes. Yeah. No. And that makes sense in terms of even uh, binging and purging, where Mm -hmm. if you're teaching yourself that you're supposed to push yourself to the very, very, very brink of fullness and then potentially the way that your body might see uh, a way out is purging, is trying mm-hmm. to relieve some of that fullness. Because if, I mean, I've had situations where I overeat and I'm just like, oh, I feel so icky and so sick. And mm-hmm. that's that's that was my choice. That was me just maybe being overindulgent. Um, but it makes sense that like, if that's a even a really common thing, if maybe there's a lot of kind of the clean plate club going on, but on such a deeper level, when you connect it to the... Um, this respect and the honor and the religious aspect, like it's so much deeper that makes sense that that could develop um, even further disordered eating with potentially feeling like you need to purge, maybe not out of anything to do with how you want your body to look, but maybe simply mm-hmm. out of like almost survival where your body's like, this is too much and I need to get rid of it in some way. And this is the only way we know how. Right. Um, and that can lead to self-induced vomiting, right? But also like diuretic and laxative use. Um, And I think the kind of the segue into body image there is that, you know, there's often like this dual pressure to like eat more in these social settings, but also a lot of people will comment on weight, right? Being like, oh, like you should eat less, right? Like you need to lose weight, but then they're at the same time telling you to eat more because they want you to accept their love and (laughs) in that way. And so there's like this dual pressure to like eat a lot, but also to be thin. And so plug in diet culture into that, that says like, well, if you eat less, you're going to lose weight. And some of these purging methods are, are going to surface, right. As a way to kind of appease both ends of the cultural expectations. Right. It's, that's such incredibly mixed messaging. And 
just from a logical perspective, you cannot, um, like if you're being expected to eat more food than your body is wanting to eat (laughs) and then also not gain any weight, like Mm -hmm. logically that doesn't really make a lot of sense. So I'm sure it seems, it probably feels like you're set up for, I, I use the word failure very like lightly here not actual Mm -hmm. failure but just set up for failure in like a societal sense yeah yeah someone might for example like if they know okay I'm going to this person's house later and I'm gonna be eating and things like that they might like eat less earlier in the day because they're like okay I'm gonna have to eat a lot later I'm gonna save space what we know is that even if you're going to eat later, you still need to eat now, right? Like your body's still going to be hungry now, regardless of whether you eat later. Um, But that restriction then can also encourage the binging later because by the time you have access to the food, you might be so hungry um, that you just, that you end up binging, right? Or you might even lose your appetite. That happens to some people where if they don't eat when they're hungry, they actually lose their appetite, end up restricting more or feeling physically ill when they they do eat and aren't feeling hungry and so all of these things again i think um like you said don't really set people up to honor their body and and honor their hunger and really respect themselves yeah and it's so interesting to hear you speak about the reasoning behind it because so many of these behaviors i've had mirrored in my own life but the mm-hmm. but the intention and the background and the context is so incredibly different. Like right. I, I, I wasn't skipping meals or maybe sa- saving up, quote unquote, like mm-hmm. my my meal tickets, if you will. In my <laughs> head, that was kind of the way that it worked was like, well, I'll save up my meal tickets and I'll skip breakfast so I can have a really big dinner tonight because I'm going to a party. But mm-hmm. for me, that that had nothing to do with like honoring someone or trying to make sure that I had mm-hmm. enough room in my stomach to respect someone or make sure that I could clear my plate. And it had everything to do with, well, if I eat a really big dinner tonight and I also eat a substantial breakfast, I'm going to gain weight. And so it was very much so like a very different intention in a very different context, right. but similar, very similar actions. But but the context is so different, which then when we talk about healing and recovery, if you don't understand the context behind why you're doing something and the like deep inherent, like if you have something that you've been practicing for so long, and like I said, the habits that even if maybe um, I, I found that in eating disorder recovery, one of the things that was so tricky for me was even after I kind of felt like I got a grasp of the body love aspect where it was like, mm-hmm. okay, I don't really want to lose the weight anymore. I'm, I'm okay with my body as is. I don't love my body yet, but I'm, I'm neutral or sometimes I like yeah. it and kind of got to that neutral space. The habits were still there. And so I had to actively work to dismantle and change habits, despite the fact that the intention wasn't there anymore. Mm -hmm. Like I I wasn't intending to do these things to lose weight, but I'd been doing them for 10 years. And so it's like, if you've got a habit that you've got for 10 years, it's going to take a a little bit of time to break that. But if you don't have the, the context, it makes sense that the healing would be so much more difficult and the recovery process would be so much more difficult because you're, you're trying to conquer a problem without having any context or um, awareness of what caused that problem or why that problem mm-hmm. is still persisting. Um, 
so that, that makes a lot of sense and also speaks to how important like your work is and how important your page is of giving that context and trying to provide potential reasoning and potential, um, understanding of why you, why certain people might be acting in certain ways and how to kind of reach recovery through that. Yeah. And that's a really good point because when we think about like collectivism again, right. And this idea that like we are a community and it's a community problem. If we think about that from the lens of like, well, how do we implement the community for healing, right? If an eating disorder could be talked about, right? If people felt comfortable bringing this to their loved ones of like, Hey, I'm struggling with this. Let's all think about how to help me heal. Then we could start to change the culture and in these environments, right? Of how do we talk about food when we're at social gatherings? When do we encourage people to eat versus respect their boundary? Because you could be doing all this work as an individual of like, okay, now I know this information. I realize these triggers. And if people are going to continue their behavior, it's going to be hard for you to not fall into that same habit again, right? And that's where I think it has to be collective healing for really that that long-lasting recovery to happen and also to prevent disordered eating in the generations that follow. Yeah. And it makes so much sense too, that, um, collectivism can be used so beautifully where like there, there is such a beauty to community and there is such a beauty to having, um, having that, uh, that support system. Um, but if that, if that family system is what's triggering you, it makes sense that you could either relapse so easily mm-hmm. or have to choose between recovery and your family, which mm-hmm. that's brutal. Like that's so brutal. And I, I know people that have gone through that in different contexts of, you know, if your family is what triggers your anxiety and you also want to be around your family, sometimes there there's a choice that has to be made there. If, if your family's not willing to, change the way that they function and, and do some, some work on themselves and, and go to therapy and, and, you know, figure out why they're Mm -hmm. acting the way that they're acting and start to unpack all of that. Um, honestly, like generational trauma and it can, it can really create, uh, kind of you're, you're put between like a rock and hard place where it's either you lose your support system or you relapse. And that, and and there's obviously nuance to that, but it, it can feel very, um, like a larger than life problem because you don't, there doesn't really feel like a way to win. Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, and I think the, the hardest thing is like the talking about it and acknowledging that it's there. Right. Because I think once we can talk about it and once there's acknowledgement and acceptance that there's a problem, then only can you start working towards the solution but it's often so difficult for, for people to, to have that space, right? Like we were talking about earlier, feeling that sense of safety that I can bring this up and that I can talk about this. And, you know, even if you do that work individually and then try to implement what you've learned to, for example, set boundaries in your, in your community, if your, if, if your support system isn't aware of what you're doing, that you're trying to set a boundary for your recovery, um, they can often be really disrespectful about it, right? And oftentimes people are then labeled as like, oh, well, 
you're a troublemaker, right? Like you're just always causing problems when we get together. Like you're like, why can't we just have a peaceful meal? Um, because they won't understand that what you're doing is to take care of you. They'll see it as like, you're doing this to cause problems for us. Right. Where in reality, once again, you're doing the brave thing. (laughs) (laughs) You're doing the brave thing by healing and, and you're, you're getting painted out to be the villain, which Mm -hmm. in itself, right. Right. And in itself causes further trauma. I did want to circle back to before we end about um, the religious aspect because we touched on mm-hmm. that briefly, but I, some of the stuff on your page that covers uh, the religious impact on people's relationship with food and their bodies specifically in South Asian cultures, I think it's not only like incredibly interesting, but also I haven't seen that anywhere else. Like y- your page is really the only page I've seen talking about that. And that could speak to to me not following the right people. Um, but I think that the way that you uh, cover it is really interesting. And so I wanted to dive into that just a little bit. Um, you have a slide on your page that talks about how religion can impact um, specifically, and you specifically covered um, Islam and, and talking about mm-hmm. how that can impact people's relationship with their food and their bodies. But how do different religions practiced in South Asian cultures impact that? How can that um contribute to a pattern of disordered eating and even a generational pattern of disordered eating? Yeah. So, I mean, we could answer this question in, in so many different ways, but the first thing that comes to mind is thinking about um, specifically South Asian folks who are living in Western countries, right? So um, religions like Hinduism, um, a lot of Hindu people follow vegetarian diets because of their religious practice. Um, people who identify as Jain, which is another common, um, religion with, within South Asia, um, often identify as lacto vegetarian, right? So they don't eat meat and eggs, but they eat dairy. And they also, um, have restrictions around eating like root and underground vegetables, like potato, garlic, onion. Um, people who identify as Muslim, will only eat certain kinds of meat and there's um, religious prayers that often need to be prayed on the meat um, for it to be considered halal, which is what many Muslims eat. And when you live in Western countries like the U.S., historically, it has been really difficult to have these nutritional and dietary needs met outside of the home environment. Right. So when we think about um, Dr. Hortensia Jimenez is, is amazing and she talks about foodscapes and foodscapes are, you know, your food environment. So the grocery stores around you, restaurants, gardens, all the food that you could potentially have access to. And historically speaking, it has been really difficult for people of these religions who also identify as South Asian to have access to food that aligns with their religious beliefs. I think vegetarianism has become more commonplace in a lot of Western countries, like over the last 15 or so years. And so I think there's a lot more options now. Um, But for example, if you're Jane and you don't eat things like garlic and onion, well, I'd say like a significant portion of Western foods contain garlic and onion, right? So that might really conflict with your religious belief. and adds to that idea of being othered because now if I'm invited to 
go out with my friends for dinner, but there's nothing I can eat on the menu, I might feel like, okay, well, I'm different, right? Is it going to be weird if I go, but I don't eat? Or, you know, and I think that can also contribute to a lot of the restrictive mindset. So for example, if you're going out to eat with friends, but you're like, well, I can't eat anything and people, and maybe you're ordering a salad because maybe that's the only thing you could eat. People might be like, oh, you're so healthy. You're so healthy. And then those ideas might become more ingrained where then it becomes disordered eating of like, well, I can only eat a salad so that people maintain this view of me being healthy. So it's very multifaceted, um, but again, can be really harmful and hurtful for people. Yeah. And that makes sense even potentially skipping meals. If you, if you Mm -hmm. go out and don't have access to something that you can eat, that maybe it's just, oh, well, I'll just skip this meal. And potentially then by the time you get home, you're not hungry anymore. Like Mm -hmm. I've, I, I have celiac disease and, um, Mm -hmm. the gluten-free diet has only really become a thing in the past, like maybe 10 years. Um, specifically, and it's similar to vegetarianism, I think more out of it being kind of a fad diet in um, like Westernized culture where it kind of became Mm -hmm. something that was, um, cool and healthy, um, compared to just trying to have equity (laughs) and have like food access for people who have allergies or have, um, religious diets that they follow or whatever. Like it, it's more that it has become more, um, mainstream, I think more out of trend than out of equity. Um, but I remember there, there were a lot of times in the, in the, the peak of my eating disorder was in, I literally got diagnosed with celiac disease when I was 15. And that was like the worst year of my eating disorder where I was, it had gone like off the rails. Um, and, uh, it also matched up with a lot of trauma in my life. So you've got a lot of things Mm -hmm. doubling down. And there were a lot of times where I would go out to restaurants with people and I would just skip meals because it was like, well, I can't eat anything. And if I already have an eating disorder and I'm already struggling with restriction, that also Mm kind of gave me an easy out because it was like, oh, well, I don't, I can't eat anything. Like there's nothing here that I can eat. It's not that I don't want to eat. I just can't. And I would use the, the, um, explanation very often of, oh, I love food so much. I I could never have anorexia, let alone I I had raging anorexia. I just (laughs) wasn't aware of it um, because I wasn't stick skinny. And so that was like, I I wasn't skin and bones. And in my mind, unless I was skin and bones and in the hospital, there's no way that I could possibly have anorexia. And so I used that as an excuse for, and as a um, justifier for the reason Mm -hmm. why I wasn't eating was, oh, well, I can't eat anything. Even if maybe I could have, maybe I could have kind of figured something out on the menu and maybe it wasn't, maybe it was something that wasn't my favorite or whatever, but I could have found some way to give my body nutrition. I would use that as an out because it was like an easier way for me to um, kind of meet my restriction for the day, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. without without even feeling socially judged. Because if I'm out with friends who maybe maybe have a good relationship with their bodies and maybe grew up in an environment where food was really necessary and encouraged and nutrition was encouraged and feeding your body when it was hungry was encouraged, seeing me skipping meals might be a red flag. 
And the last thing I want to do is draw attention to the fact that I might have an issue. And so um, that was an easier way for me to kind of get around that and and give a really justifiable reason to why I wasn't eating that wouldn't be questioned by people because it was just, well, I don't have access to this food, so I can't eat. Um, And if anything, um, I actually went vegetarian for a period of time, I think kind of to double down on that because Mm -hmm. it was like, if I'm gluten-free and vegetarian, I have very few things that I can eat. And that almost like permitted my eating disorder to take it to the next level, if that makes sense, where it was like, Mm -hmm. well, now I'm not just choosing not to eat. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so I haven't thought about that in a religious context because like I said, I grew up in a Christian environment and there really is no, um, food restrictions when it comes to, to Christianity. It's, it's pretty eat what you want. (laughs) Um, but that, that, that makes a lot of sense that it would either accidentally breed eating disorder, uh, or disordered eating, um, or that if you already are struggling with that, that it could Mm -hmm. enable it. Yeah. And I think it can also impact your like religion and how religion is perceived in the environment can also impact like a relationship to your body. And one of the things that I like learned about recently that I think is really fascinating and also really bad for lack of a better word, um, was thinking about, so in India, um, there's a group of people who are called hijras, right? And in Hinduism, Hidras would often perform things like song, dance, and blessings at weddings and at birth ceremonies. Um, and their blessings were often tied to things like fertility, prosperity, living a long life, right? So they were seen as having really incredible religious, um, like, power. And hijras, sorry, I should back up, were people who identified as um, neither male nor female. They identified outside of the gender binary. And this was a really normalized and accepted part of the Hindu religion and and South Asian culture. Now, when colonialism happened and the British, who were primarily Christian identifying, um, came to the South Asian lands and and India specifically, um, they did believe in gender binaries. And so they criminalized the idea of being a hijra, of being someone who identifies outside of this binary. And so because of that colonialism, it ended up impacting the mental health of many, many hijras, right? It also impacted things like their socioeconomic status, um, also inclusivity in the law. It's only, um, at this point, the laws have changed and a lot of them have been repealed, but they were not included within Indian society because of that British colonialism and really the Christian Christianity that was associated with that colonialism. And so when you think about that, right, and how it also impacts things like body dysmorphia, how it impacts your comfortability of, of dress and what it feels like you're allowed to dress as or dress in um can really also impact your your body image and your desire to change or alter your bodies to align with what a more dominant culture is saying yeah it just there's so many levels to it and yeah. it, and it's <laughs> it's obviously like when you take something that is such a massive issue that is so intersectional and has so many different things that contribute to it Mm-hmm. Um, 
it makes sense that when you try to, it's, it's not going to be black and white when you try to boil down the root cause. Cause there really, there really is no one root cause. There's a, there's a yeah. plethora of root causes. Um, so that makes, that makes sense that so many different things in the culture can contribute to it. Um, and that's an interesting aspect too. Cause I, when I think of body image, it, it doesn't even the, the body dysmorphia when it comes to like, um, like gender dysmorphia and, and not feeling at home in your own body because mm-hmm. of gender and because of binaries that that's not what my brain goes to. My brain goes straight to not liking the fact that my, my thighs feel like they're too big. Like that's mm-hmm. what my brain goes to, but that, that makes so much sense as well that it, it does cross over and how interesting and also how heartbreaking, um, yeah. that it's, it's so, 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 so woven into the history and woven into the, the background and the context where this is, this goes deep, <laughs> like goes it really deep. And it's the same with skin color, right? So a lot mm-hmm. of times, and not just with South Asian folks, but I've seen this with a lot of people who identify as BIPOC is skin color is a huge part of body image, right? And when the British colonized South Asia, having a lighter skin color became associated with being part of the wealthy community because the, the people who had darker skin were traditionally the people who had to work more in the fields who were of a lower socioeconomic status. And so to this day, right, even like having a lighter skin tone is often associated with being more eligible for marriage, being prettier, being more valuable. Um, you're like prospect of getting a job is seen as being higher because you're more in alignment with what Western society would consider as being pretty or beautiful. Right. And so I've seen a lot of clients who've tried to change their skin tone. They might like there's fair and lovely products. I don't know if you've ever encountered them, but, um, a lot of Clients might have experimented with those trying to lighten the sh- their skin color. People don't play outside in the sun because they don't want to get darker, right? There's all right. these body altering behaviors that exist outside of weight, shape, and size that people are often engaging in. And to take it a step further, when it feels like perhaps, okay, I can't control my skin color, like it's not getting lighter despite all the products I'm using. They might then be like, okay, well, if I can't change my skin color, I can change my weight, right? So let me try to focus on that instead. Yeah, just try to find something that can be adjusted to meet society standards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the skin lightening, um, that was something I was not familiar with at all until I went to China and mm-hmm. I am incredibly pale. Like we're talking a hundred SPF <laughs> multiple times. Like it's like I and and when we went to China, we went in the summer, and so it was like a hundred and seven degrees. And so I am like, I got my umbrella, I've got my SPF, like I'm ready to go. And we had people walking up to us to take pictures, and I was incredibly confused. And we were with um. Uh, we had an, I had an international student who lived with me, um, three years while I was in high school and, um, became like a part of our family. And we went 
to China with her. And so she could basically the idea of it, this is kind of a, a, a funny idea, but she got to see all of my favorite places when she lived with us in Seattle and she got to see my favorite coffee shops. She got to see where I grew up. She got to see our favorite restaurants. And the idea of the trip was not like a tourist trip. It was, we want to see her favorite places. Like that was the whole idea of the trip was just that we had got to show her our hometown and our lives for three years. And she had become a major part of our lives. And we didn't ever get to see anything about how she grew up. We got to hear stories and things, but we never got to, to see any of it. So the whole idea was just us going so we could basically just like get a tour of her life more than a tour of China. Um, and so we went to just kind of like get to see her, her life in Beijing and um that was one of the things even in in stores like the the amount of bleaching products that i mm-hmm. that we saw i was like in awe and i i asked her cuz i and i was like oh, i'm so confused like why is that like desired and she explained exactly what you just explained that that darker skin was associated with essentially like a lower class um and that the the fairer and the paler that you were the the more wealthy people assume that you were or the prettier mm-hmm. or the um the higher class you kind of were assumed to be in um and simultaneously i me and my baby sister are incredibly pale like blue eyed like i had blonde hair or blonder hair at the time and we just had people coming up all the time and like taking random pictures of us because because of the color of our skin. And it was one of those, like, I was like 17. It was one of those moments where it was like, Ooh, okay. Like I feel like I'm grasping more of why just, I guess more of why skin color is such a topic of conversation because I grew up in a very, um, whitewashed environment and a very pale body in America where I didn't experience anything and my skin color was never a topic of conversation. That was never something that I even thought twice about. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was one of the, like, for lack of a better phrase, kind of like come to Jesus moments as, as right. a child growing into adulthood, realizing the weight of how, um, how much thought goes into skin color and how how yeah. it's on the the front of so many people's minds of trying to manage and adjust it so that it fits in with societal expectations and that was that was one of those moments where i was like oh okay i've had a very narrow view of society and of life thus far um cuz yeah. it was just something that i had never really come across yeah and skin color is often associated also with like marriage eligibility right because in South Asian culture, there tends to be a lot of focus on getting married, right? And and procreating. And your marriage eligibility, especially if you are female identifying, um, is often focused on being thin and that if you have lighter skin, you're going to be more attractive, not only to a romantic partner, but to that partner's family. Um, and so you know, people are encouraged from a really young age, like, don't play outside too much, like, don't get darker, like, be watch your weight, like, all these things, because the family is often so focused on ensuring that you are really groomed to get married, rather than groomed to be happy and right. to be fulfilled in your life. 
Which once again goes back to the core of your needs are not the priority. Exactly. Nice way to bring it all back. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for coming on. I, for one, I think it's incredibly important. I think the conversation is incredibly important because it's, I, I don't think it gets talked about half as much as it should be. Um, both in a social media space or a podcasting space and also just in mainstream culture and in general. Um, So thank you for the work that you're doing, but also for um, your intentionality about being intersectional and being inclusive and um, being aware of the different circumstances that people may have grown up in. Because I think that um, funny enough, despite the fact that a lot of what you're saying does not apply to me in terms of context and cultural background. I feel like I learned more about my eating disorder through this conversation, despite the (laughs) fact that it's, it's not my context. It's not my history. It's not my culture. So um, thank you for what what you do, because it's, it's, it's not just going to impact people who relate to you. It'll also impact people who maybe don't have that culture or that background. And then simultaneously, the people who do deserve that representation and deserve to have a space where they're able to feel safe and feel heard, especially coming from backgrounds that might feel incredibly isolating and like they have to really keep up that emotional armor. Um, So thank you for what you do. And with that being said, I want to give you a chance to plug your page so that people listening can learn more from you and um, hear more from you. So uh, if you don't mind just giving some some Instagram tags or whatever you have to plug so people can find you. (laughs) For sure. Well, I also want to say thank you. um, One for hosting your podcast, but also for being an ally, being curious and really inviting a diverse range of speakers onto your podcast. um, Knowing that you have so such far of a reach. Um, I really appreciate the work that you're doing and appreciate your allyship in this process. in terms of where to find me, so on Instagram, you can find me at, at your South Asian therapist. Um, I also have a TikTok. I'm very new on TikTok, so I think I only have like one post, <laughs> but it's the same handle. Feel free to follow me there and hopefully I'll have more content coming out. Um, I do offer some blog posts on my website, which is fjshakir.wordpress.com. I can give you that information, Fina, in case you want to post it. Oh, yeah, for Um, sure. And I'm also accepting clients in the state of New York. Um, So I offer virtual sessions and, you know, I I love working with people. So if you're, you know, interested in seeking out therapy or you know somebody who is, I encourage you um, to reach out. I'm I'm offering sessions through Conison Psychological Services. um, And I can also give you know, the link for that, um, to post. Amazing. Yes. I will definitely include all of that in the episode description. Um, well, thank you again so much for coming on and for your kind words. Um, I, I really appreciate it. And like I said, I really appreciate and value the work that you do. And, um, I think it'll be really impactful. Um, especially you're, you're talking to an audience of a lot of people who have dealt with disordered eating. That's, that's a really good chunk of my audience is a lot of, um, people who grew up in pretty, pretty intense, like diet culture households. And so, um, thank you again for coming on. I really appreciate it. 
Of course. And, you know, um, for anyone who's listening, if your organization, if your school ever wants to do a training on any of these topics, um, I do offer a lot of different training opportunities and I would love to come and keep raising awareness. So please don't hesitate to reach out. Yeah. Amazing. Well, if, if you are listening and you want to take, uh, take her up on that, I will, I will include all that information below so you can. Um, but thank you again. And that's all the time that we have for today. Thank you guys so much for listening. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please rate us five stars on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also follow the podcast on Instagram at mindful minds pod with our new username and visit us online at mindfulmindspod.com and seraphinablog.com. You can also follow us on TikTok at Fina underscore underscore Bina, that's spelled F-I-N-A underscore underscore B-I-N-A for deconstruction content and at Mindful Minds Podcast for all the podcast clips. And as always, to end our time, unclench your jaw, take a deep breath, and remember, you can always learn, you can always grow, and you can always choose to live your life in a more mindful way. I will chat with you guys in two weeks.